Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. This is becoming a bit of a habit, isn't it? Um, so today my guest is Natasha Cleave of the Cleave Partnership. She's a client that I was going to say an old client, but that would be unfair. She's a very young and vibrant client who uh, I worked with for some time ago before the pandemic. And she runs a, a recruitment company with a bit of a difference. You, you definitely want to follow her content because she's always very helpful for candidates, helping them to present themselves to the market appropriately. And to do so in a crowded market, you've got to really differentiate. So on that note, here's your chance to do so. Tash, over to you. Hello. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I'm so pleased you invited me. And um, look, you know, I've been in the recruitment industry for 35 years. So thanks for saying I'm young, but I'm absolutely not. Um, and uh, lots of work done then. <laughs> I look after myself. <laughs> uh, like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's chalk and cheese, you and I. <laughs> uh, well, I've certainly got a lot more hair than you've got. Um, Thank you very so, much. <laughs> so, um, look, I've, I've worked right across the industry, right across a, a range of different disciplines, and the one common theme or the consistency that I've always seen in the recruitment industry is the complete and utter lack of regard for the candidate um, and, and, and what most people don't know about the recruitment industry or they don't seem to consider is it's simply a sales tool for making money anybody there's no barrier to entry in the recruitment industry anyone can get 50 in. quid and a gold card you're in pretty much you know then you learn how to do it on linkedin set up your own recruitment agency and scam clients for whatever you can get away with it's a lot worse than it used to be it was always thus but the client their client is the client, it's the company, it's not you, the candidate. And in the good old days, when there weren't so many recruitment companies, they it was fine. You knew which ones did interim management, you knew which ones worked in your sector. Now, according to Companies House, there's 48,000 recruitment companies registered. At How companies. many? 48,000. Okay, no. Yeah. A lot of those will be one-man bands, but, you know, an awful lot of them will be, you know, really toxic unpleasant sales outfits where it's all about yeah it's all about the kpis it's all about the bone it's all about the commission and that's where you get some really really poor behaviors so you know i've worked for some of the big ones really big ones you know the top search firms in the country i've worked for small boutiques i've worked for you know all sorts and i've decided i'm unemployable can't work for them i don't share their values <laughs> and the only way out of it was to set up my own business so not a natural businesswoman i still had to do it so here I sit running my own business. And for me, I, I put a huge amount of care and consideration into the experience that candidate has. And then it, it works for the client, of course. And it seems perfectly natural to do that because when you consider that this person is actually going to have to execute the job, the first touch is often the recruiter. Unless you're working for a known brand, chances are they may not even know your company exists. If the first touch is someone whose only intent is to uh, be another notch on uh, the bedpost, it's hardly um, uh, great brand uh, you know, uh, values. Uh, so what, why is it that the industry has allowed itself to become like that? Because it, it can't be profitable for most of them. Um, well, I'll tell you, I, th I, I think it's a some kind of macabre dance to the death that everyone's where the clients and the, and the recruitment industry are mutually complicit. If you look at most businesses, the way that they measure 
onboarding people or getting people into their companies against time to hire and cost to hire. And that is the measure. They now have internal talent people or they'll go out to recruitment companies that charge the least. And that's the way that HR are targeted. Nothing against HR, albeit I have plenty against HR. Sorry, HR, if you're listening. But, um, you know, they're not targeted on doing better or making a better experience for people or bringing in the right people. They manage their part of the process. They shove it over the line. They can tick their box. Procurement are happy. Chief finance officer is happy. Over to the rest of them. And what happens after that doesn't, they don't give a, they don't care. But this is all cultural and it comes down from the money at the top. I can see this pattern time and time again. If you really believed the rhetoric that your people were your most important asset, um, they wouldn't be a cost on your balance sheet in the way that uh, they are. And they're just a line item that can be dispensed with whenever you need to make a better valuation. And it's cynical the way most people go to market to recruit. I see so little care. The number of times I've seen people use the same job description that the revolving door of certainly in sales that salespeople have been hired on and then yeah. fired on and they're on their third or fourth or fifth iteration. They think, oh, well, maybe we'll change this or that. But it's normally just changing the package. And the preparation for the interview is the two minutes when they say, oh, I can't find this CV. Can you email it to me again? As they're walking to the um, from their office to the interview room, reading the CV on their phone. Yeah. It's absolutely brutal, isn't it? And, you know, it has always been thus, as as you know. I think you started your own career in recruitment, did Marcus? I forgot. It was faxes instead of phones then, but yeah. Yeah. Faxes. I used to have have to write letters to people's homes address. Uh, And I remember when the first fax came in, it was like, this is... I will. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Remarkable. Yeah, I mean, but, but when people are just a resource, you know, they're just bodies that flow through the door then it's just a game of chance, isn't it? If one of them makes good, then you get lucky. But now it's changed. It is, there are less people for them to care about, for, for them to choose. So they really should be making more of an effort to get it right. But they're not. Well, there are and there aren't. Because there are a lot of people who are very, very, very pissed off and um, are flight risks. In Talent LMS did a study last year forecasting that 72% of all the people in technology would uh, look for a new job. Mm. And actually in the States, Gallup's research suggests that 73% of all US employees have looked for a new job this year. So it's created the conditions where there is massive distrust between the workforce and leadership. And there is little or no loyalty because there is little or no trust. So how do you get leadership to tell their investors, well, hang on a second, you're burning through our cash, which we're then going to have to go out and refund, diluting equity in order to fuel this Ponzi scheme, because that's all it is. Great way to describe it, Marcus. It's a great way to describe it. I reckon if the cost of failed hiring, the attrition costs were put onto the P&L, that would make most chief execs sit up and take notice. Ooh. Yes. Now, now, what a good idea. Absolutely, because it's substantial. The Recruitment and Employment Confederation say that for a £30,000 employee, the cost of failure and the cost of rehiring would bring the cost of that appointment up to 130000 Yeah, that would be about right 
for enterprise, I have a calculator. Anyone's very welcome to it. It's on my profile and it's how to uh, calculate the cost of a bad hire. And for an enterprise seller, it's anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary. Yeah. So put that in your pipe and smoke. But they don't, I'm sure they don't believe it. And if you're talking to HR, they don't care because they're not measured on it. So you need to go and speak to the chief exec, but the chief exec simply defers everything down to HR where everything sits and dies because the, the, the demands and requirements are not aligned. They're not aligned obesity. HR done well is so precious and valuable. And by and large, I know it's very rare. It's like you know, strategic procurement. It's maybe one in 10. But the problem is that HR seems to have been dumped with a bunch of really horrible jobs. A cheap substitute for bad legal advice, firing, disciplinary, managing the recruitment systems, and other tedious stuff like that. They're not valued at all. So, valued. so but there's a reason for that as well. Quite often, the type of people that come into the HR environment are well-meaning people. They care. You know, they are, you know, they, that's why they're doing it. Human, well, resource, it's a dreadful title anyway. But, you know, they're caring, kind people. They don't want to upset they do a really old standard, you know, professional qualification. CIPD hasn't changed in 30 years. They come in and they have to specialise. And actually, they're not very um, business orientated often. There isn't enough of a business qualification within the concept of the CIPD. So you've got really I'm nice saying, people. Saying salespeople, though. Yeah, exactly. So they're attracting the wrong calibre of individuals. So when you get a really, really competent individual that recognises they're serving the business, and they have to facilitate that, and they need to understand that, then they will start looking at ways to improve it. Other than that, they're just turning a handle. And yeah, it must be a crap job most of the time. But the good ones, oh my God, when you get one of them. I I worked with a good one in the last 12 months, and she was magnificent. Yeah, I mean, Um, they stand out hugely. It was fantastic. Everything ran smoothly. She was eager to learn. I learned bucket loads back from her. What a fabulous, I was uh, running a recruitment campaign to build my team. And it was just a pleasure to partner with someone like that. So this then brings us to this whole question about how you can actually help your recruiter as a candidate in order to market you well. Let's start with some of the crashingly painful blind spots. So what, what are the blind spots that we see that candidates have when they're trying to approach the market or they're considering a change of role? The biggest one is they haven't actually sat down and thought about what they what they offer, what their product is. And the reality is... What do you mean well, their product? Well, you know, if I'm going to go to market, I could turn around to you and say, Marcus, you really need to hire me. I'm a great recruitment consultant. Now, I don't particularly want to call myself a recruitment consultant because it's a, it's a title that's lost you know, any form of respect. So I might change it to become a global talent acquisition manager or or any other headhunter. Sounds much more sexy, doesn't it? But boiling me down to me, I'm a recruitment consultant. And I have to be able to say that. So if I cover it up with a whole load of ridiculous terminology to pretend I'm anything but, I'm simply going to confuse my audience. But it's inauthentic as well. Well, it's completely unauthentic. But the audience, you know, the audience, sadly, are quite often the people least capable of understanding what you're talking about anyway, even if you gave them a straight answer, because they're recruitment consultants or internal talent people who are on average, average age of a recruiter in this country, Marcus, 23. 23. Yep. I don't know if you know any 23. Yeah, on the money. Yeah. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want a 23-year-old managing my career, but they're the gatekeeper. 
Well, Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world by 21. <laughs> There's always the very the, the unique ones, and, and, and of course there are, but you don't get, you know, recruitment takes up these poor little 23-year-olds straight out of uni, rinses them through their process, and they, they get no training, they get no capability, they get no learning about how to interview or identify. Most now... Do they ever get a chance to interview? Because most yeah. of them are just seem to be word search specialists. Yeah, I mean, basically, they're administrators of recruit tech with the yeah. word recruitment or talent before them. So, you know, I came up the hard way. I had to learn through making a lot of mistakes and embarrassing myself constantly. But these guys don't have to. <laughs> they just do it. So they administer recruitment. The tech does it all for them. They just flip the bodies across. So, no, they don't have the skills to do it. And yet, still, the client asks these people who know nothing to facilitate that most precious candidate that critical person that incredible resource into their business it, it's really mad it's flipped completely the wrong way around make a better process make bring humanity into it look at what you're trying to do i interviewed mitch sullivan for the podcast and he uh, we uh, issued it uh, this week or last and what was really interesting he's all about the recruitment advertising and selling the job in the same way most employers' job adverts and job descriptions are turgid and dull. Your CV, your LinkedIn profile, your content, which I have to tell you is really important because it builds an audience. And Absolutely. it also builds your testimonials, which on your LinkedIn profile will definitely help you get hired. Oh. Um, and I'm putting money on it. Most of the people listening have paid scant attention to any of that in the last 12 months. Oh, well, I could write a book on that subject, quite frankly. You know, how on earth are you going to market yourself? You have to market yourself. If you stay passive, then, you know, if you're lucky, something will come along. But probably not what you want and possibly not when you need it. So you absolutely, you have to take yourself to market. It's a full-time job getting a job. And there's three ways of doing it, quite frankly. There's only three routes to market. You can use the recruitment industry, and we've already talked about them. You can use LinkedIn, which is an incredibly powerful tool, but most people simply don't understand how it's changed. You know, 20 odd years ago, we all stuck our profiles on there and wondered if anything would happen, and nothing did. So we ignored it, but it's changed beyond all recognition. It's one of the singularly most powerful ways to take yourself to market. The third way is by networking. And when people say to me that they've networked, what they tend to mean is that they've gone round to their mates with a bit of tea and sympathy. You know, and I call it the, you know, tea and bun marketing. It's, it's bullshit, quite frankly. You don't go to your mates and say, don't suppose you've got anything, because these are the people that probably know you the best. So therefore, they probably have the most, the greatest fixed mindset about you and who you are and what you can do. <laughs> Anyone who knows me will never hire me. Precisely. No one would ever mind recommend you for a job, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've decided to hang up my spurs. I just I fancy being a wage slave. You're, you're a little bit of a risk. Um, <laughs> unpredictable. But, you know, you, in the course of your lifetime, the people that you engage with, your network is huge from the very first job through every job since. These people will know you enough to remember you. Even if it's a vague recollection, it's still enough of a connection for them to think, right, yes, of course, I recognise that. I mean, just in the knowing, you get yourself to the top of the pile. So if work out who these people are. Build a list of 150 people. Connect with them on LinkedIn. And then inform them that you're available and what you do. So, hi, 
You might remember me from when we met at, I'm on the market looking for my next job. This is what I do. Three bullet points. And then you just say, if you're interested, it'd be lovely to hear from you. Best regards. And the reason that approach works is because you're not asking for anything. You're not asking for their time, a cup of tea, a meeting. You're not imposing anything on them. You're simply informing them that you are a skill set that is waiting to be hired. And you might just strike it lucky, particularly if you do it with 150 people all at once. And then those people that don't respond, don't get all personal about it. They're just busy. Three weeks later, write to them again. Say, hi, I wrote to you a couple of weeks ago just to inform you, just to inform you. Don't get embarrassed. You're not asking for anything. British people are terrible at networking. But if you see it as you have a duty to inform your audience that you're available and they might when they might want to hire you, then it takes all that embarrassment out of it. It's a really powerful way of doing it. And lots of people I've told to do that have got jobs as a result of it. I would take it one step <laughs> further, which is I would recommend that if you know that you're thinking of moving, start that two years before. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you would expect to be in a role three years, um, then start that outreach and that targeting two years before without any intent or pressure about the job or anything else, just start the connection. And mm-hmm. if you come across an interesting white paper, send that across them. Say, remember the last time when we connected, I remember that you were interested in circuses. I came across this fabulous white paper and thought of you. Wow. And just start nurturing those relationships. And you start building your medium term and your long term pipeline out early. So when you are ready to move, there's a dozen people who already know, like, and trust you. That's I, how you manage your career. Absolutely. But for those people that haven't started yet, I tend to suggest that they get a piece of paper or, sorry, a spreadsheet, show my age here, three columns, put 50 names into each column. And the reason I suggest they do it like that is because the ones that come easiest to them will be in the first column. They'll scribble them down really easily. And that's probably their first stage connection, the people they know pretty well. By the time you start to get to column two and indeed column three, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel of the names from your past. You don't just have to be people you've worked with, these people you've sat across a desk to and tried to sell something to or who've tried to sell something to you. Anyone that when reminded of how you met will remember you, come into your network and then you connect with them all. And that's instantly 150 people. People have got to be absolutely clear about why it's so important to have connections on LinkedIn. It's the easiest way of getting hold of people now. It's so simple. And they don't. You know, they've had a LinkedIn profile for 20 years. They've got 341 contacts. Or they've slimmed it down. It's like, oh, for God's sake, what have you done that for? It's not about who you know or keeping your network tight. It's actually about everyone because it's not about your network. It's about my network. If somebody connects with me, I've got 10,000 connections. So they've got one first stage connection. And they've got instantly 10,000 more people from in their second stage connections and probably a couple of million in their third. So just connect, you know, stop being precious about it. Connect because somewhere in there just might be that person that's looking for you. And if you, they don't know you're out there, then well, you will never come together. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. We'll, we'll dig into LinkedIn a bit more uh, later. I'm very interested in your approach to helping people develop their proposition as a candidate in order to help them to differentiate in their marketplace. What's the process that you take them through to help to work that out? Well, typically I interview them. I interview them at length. And this isn't a have you ever this isn't a competency-based interview, it's a conversation. 
and then you pull out from them where where they clearly had great success, where they, they where they were motivated, where they were infused. And when they say, you know, I'm a blue sky thinker that can do anything, it's like, well, bully for you. No one's going to has ever asked me for a blue sky thinker that can do anything. So what is it you offer? And then you get down to it. It could go far back as, you know, they're academics. Are they an engineer? Great. Well, if you've got an engineer, then you have a, a sense of their intellectual capability. You know, obviously, they're very logical. They've got kind of a certain level of capability. If they, unless they're a really bad engineer. Unless, <laughs> I think even they get jobs in this market. <laughs> so, you know, just it's just kind of boiling down all their fluff and boiling down all of their ways of deflecting what they what they want most people i tell you what they do is they try and catch all this i could do a bit of that i could do that i could do that i could do that it's like well you know but what are you and i i, I said that once i had an interview with a guy and, he, and his cv was dreadful and uh i looked at it and i flung it across the desk at him and i said uh, i said oh i said you really expect me to read this <laughs> I, beg, I beg your pardon natasha and i said i'm not being funny but it's really boring uh-huh. he was like, he was furious. I said, answer me a question. What are you? Doesn't they never answer that question? It's well, I can do this, and I and, and I go, it's not the question I asked you. What are you? And then I have to say, look, I'm a recruitment consultant. What are you? And then and sometimes they get it, but they still try and deflect. So it's a very psychological thing. I am bigger than a thing. I don't want to be put into a box. I can do all sorts of things. And so they've lost the capability to define what they're offering. And if they can't describe what they are, then how the bloody hell do they expect anyone else to find it? So if you are one thing, say it. And then the job, my job, for example, is say I'm a recruitment consultant, but the reason I'm a brilliant one is because of this and this and this. It's not to pretend I'm not a recruitment consultant. I'm a people advisor. I mean, that just doesn't help anyone, does it? So they're lying to themselves. What you need to do is to define exactly what you offer and then say it and then sell it in a way that makes you attractive to an audience that will want you. And that comes from thinking about what the problems they might have, where you could be the resolution to them. So, again, one of the things that I've found very successful in the past working with my clients is to really think about the hiring manager and really think about the job they have to get done. Yeah. And make sure that you're positioning yourself as somebody who will help them to accomplish that their outcomes. And I think far too few people have the level of self-awareness where they realize that the effect they have on others is really the measure of their self-awareness. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. It's becoming more so. It's about them. It's not they'll think what you can do for your company. Uh, It's it's what can I do for myself? You know, what can I get? Any manager, any drowning man or woman that, that needs some capable people in their business to help them deliver what they need to do will grasp you exactly like a drowning man if you present yourself in that way be my be the resolution to my problem i've got to do this help me don't become an encumbrance to me just just help me get there so think about the problems that they have think about where you could be this be the resolution to that and and talk into that they'll they'll snatch you up with both hands When, when i'm training people to recruit when i'm recruiting myself one of the most important things I'm looking for is what are the kind of challenges they're going to face and what would be parallel challenges in their um, a candidate's history yeah. uh, that would be applicable. And yeah. I don't really care whether they've been successful in solving that problem. 
What I care about is have they thought about the problem yeah. and have they had to question it and really understand the problem? Because the better they understand the problem, the more likely they are to come up with a solution that results in fewer negative unintended consequences and um, that uh, we're going to have more buy-in to. So what sort of preparation should someone who is considering a change or it's been foisted on them uh, in terms of preparing to brief their recruiter? Well, you know, there's a slight challenge in that in as much as I'm not entirely convinced many recruiters will necessarily either understand. Well, let's assume that they found a good one. So okay. let's start with that. Well, I mean, first and foremost, they should have done their research. They should be able to be really clear with me, you know, the markets that they're looking to go in. Don't tell me that you can do everything anywhere because that just doesn't help me at all. You know, be absolutely a choice. Yeah, it just doesn't fit. You have to some extent put yourself in a, in a box so that you're comprehensible to both your intelligent and your ignorant audience because your ignorant audience are your gatekeeper. So they think they're writing a CV or they're preparing to, to speak to somebody who will ultimately hire them. And they're not. There's half a dozen gateways in the way of them getting there, any one of which they'll be thrown out of them, be, be thrown out of the process. So, you know, the first one's a recruiter or the internal talent person or go back from that. It could be the ATS. You know, you might have to do a video interview. I mean, how dreadful are they these days you know, where you have to prepare? So if you come onto it and you haven't done your prep, you haven't defined your product, you haven't considered what the questions might be, you haven't thought about the answers. Preparation, research. I've thrown people out of interviews before now who came to work for me. I said, what do you know about me? And when they didn't know, it's like, well, the conversation ended. It's not as though it's hard in this day and age to find information. But people are very, you know, I have to say it's changed quite a bit in my opinion since COVID. People are much more helpless or they're much more considered, much more concerned about themselves rather than the company. I don't want to work five days a week. I want to work three days a week. And then I want two of those working from home. Well, well that doesn't help me. It helps you. But that's not what I want. I need somebody here. So you've got to be flexible. You've got to recognize that the market is turning back to the way it used to be. You've got to be prepared to offer 100% of your services for the salary someone's going to pay you number of people that say I'm one of three days a week at home it's like well yeah we all know what you're doing at home most of you uh, let's not pretend we don't I have to say I do a lot with the exec world so they're, they're rather better I have to say but when you're kind of dropping down into different levels of work am I convinced as an employer as a recruiter that these people are giving me eight hours a day every day when they're working from home I have to say I'm not okay again I'm going to challenge you on this because I, I, I disagree I don't care whether they give me eight hours or three hours as long as the outcome is achieved and that they arrive at the point they said they would when they said they would. Um, because I, I give my people a lot of trust and there's plenty of opportunity for them to speak to me if there's a problem. So, you know, it, it's not like they're left hanging. We put good systems and processes and all that kind of stuff in place. But they own their bit of the job. And it's their responsibility to deliver. It's my responsibility to create the conditions so that they can. But you're talking about good leadership, and that is very rare. Create the conditions for them to be successful, and they, they probably will be because they'll be motivated, infused, and bought into you and the company. Right, but <laughs> a large portion of our audience are leaders, and what they're looking for is understanding and guidance on how to do this well. Mm -hmm. They want to be destination employers. 
they recognize that having highly engaged staff is five times more profitable mm. than average levels of engagement, that share mm-hmm. price valuation triples annually compound if their people are engaged. Hanging on to people. No one, I mean, Tash, no one wants to hire someone. They want to hire someone who can do the job well, improves over time, mm. and stays, don't they? Absolutely. And the best way to do that is you know, A, get the right person in place in the first place. So yeah. don't just recruit them on skills. You know, skills are the le- almost the least because skills can be taught. Absolutely. So recruit them on their motivations, recruit them on their values, recruit them on their beliefs. You know, if they've got the right intellectual level of capability for that job, great. Everything else, skills can be taught. So, you know, if you have a, I don't know, a civils engineer who wants to become a batteries engineer, stands to reason, you know, that transition could probably be made with the right kind of training. But if they've got the right motivation, and a lot of middle-aged people absolutely do, they're the, they're the, you know, the demographic of people that's being disappeared all over the country at the moment. Um, and yet they're, they're the ones with the right motivations often and the right values. And a lot of experience and a bit of scar tissue and a bit of um, maturity. Absolutely. But, you know, onboarding them well, doesn't involve just giving them a laptop and saying, get on with it, go and see these people. Onboarding them properly, making you understand the EBP, the, you know, the, the value proposition of the client. Who are we? Why are we the best in our market for what we do? Or why we're not, but this is where we want to get to, how we want to get there, what we're going to do and invest in you, how we're going to help you get there. These are the people that we want you to aspire to. Managing that EBP and then getting them onboarded properly means that their productivity goes straight up because they're instantly delighted with the experience that they're having. They tend to stay longer, you know, and they tend to produce more when they're in there. But if, you, if somebody comes through a recruitment experience, which is all smoke and mirrors, and they land in a company that doesn't live up to its values that it's espoused in the interview, and the management are too busy to look after them and the processes don't align to their personal values, and they'll be gone in what is statistics says that within 18 months, something like 47% of new hires, 18 months, 47% of new hires are gone. And that's not down to pay or anything like that. It's down to cultural misfit. They don't like the company that they're coming to. And, and the cost of that must be massive. I heard in the more terrifying statistics. So one of us is probably uh, being fed uh, a line, but 30% of new hires leave within 42 days. <laughs> in this market bloody hell i think that might just be within tech but just the thought you've spent all that time and money attracting recruiting then putting them through what sort of training you do burning through data licenses provisioning insurance management all of that and a third of them are gone in a month and a half because it wasn't the job they were sold they realized they're a misfit they realize that their boss is a total ass. They don't like what they're doing. They don't like the company. And all of this stuff could have been prevented if they had a halfway decent think about the candidate before they hired them. Yeah. So one of the um, advantages of using a, a firm like mine, but a search firm, and what we do is we spend a lot of time engaging with the client in the first place. I'm constantly told that the job specs that we write are the best they've ever seen. Because the spec is in there somewhere, page three or four. But first of all, we talk about the company. Who are they? What's their pedigree? What's their history? Where are they going? Let me talk about the story. Of course, you're just weaving a beautiful story. And then they're absolutely engaged. And then you treat them with the greatest respect and regard throughout the process. You keep them informed. 
you know, never think that you manage your client because the number of times they'll let you down or they'll then come in with a low ball offer and ruin all the hard work that you've done. It's just a full-time job managing a senior hire into a large organisation and doing it well. If the senior hire then drops the ball, doesn't onboard them properly, then of course they're going to go. But if we can manage that end of the process too, so this is how you onboard somebody, this is how you you build you know, the line capability and knowledge, because the line managers are also incredibly busy. But make sure they sit down, they understand who this person is. They, they, maybe you can see there, we do a five-bar model where it is about you know, short intellect, motivations, values, behaviours and skills. This is the person that you're getting. If you can, you can understand this, then the person you, you, then you can understand how to work with them. And we culture fit. So what's the point of putting in somebody that's going to be completely poisonous within a team and upset the rest of the status quo? Because it'll be the good team that leave before Mr. Toxic or Mrs. Toxic does. So, you know, don't... Hire for, hire for trust and hire for what you can't train. Yeah, yeah. But don't overlook this extraordinary pool of talent and capability and brilliant people just because... What did I write in one of my posts these days? That maybe they're kind of a few hairs short of a full head these days, or the girls aren't as pretty as they used to be. We're older. Shit happens. You're going to get older too, everybody. It's a, it, The baby boomers are now in their 50s and 60s, and that's where the enormous number of people are. And, and, you know, what they've gone through to get there, don't tell me they don't understand technology. You and I just talked about it. We were there when the first faxes came in. Look at where we've gone from faxes to here. You work my phone brilliantly. But, you know, we can learn. We can understand tech. We're motivated to do it. We can train. We don't want to retire at 55, 65 anymore because we've got 30 years left of life, possibly. What we're going to do for the next 30 is we want to work. We want to contribute. And the fact that they're overlooked and you've got lazy-ass exclamations from people like Dane What's-A-Face, the chairman of John Lewis, saying the government must do something to get 50-year-olds back into work because they're all off on retirement. It's bullshit really is bullshit. It's her and her ilk that need to change their processes to make sure that the capability of people in midlife is, is valued and recognised. Going to get me in my soapbox now. No, um, absolutely get on your soapbox, because I think the mistake organisations make is they tend to hire in their own image only weaker, and then they overcompensate, or not overcompensate, they over-assign specific qualities and so then the boat starts to list and they can only attract certain types of customers Hmm. now that's fine in certain cases but for most organizations actually what it does it starts to create a not invented here kind of culture and it's very difficult for people to integrate because the adversity to change is constrained that's the way we do things around here which i think Hmm. is a sackable offense in most cases no one's ever done it that way before. <laughs> and as organizations grow, they reach a tipping point where the early innovation and energy is um, no longer valued. And actually, management finds it more advantageous to their political career uh, uh-huh. to shoot ideas down because it's a threat. Um, or it just means oh, a bit of hard work. And what I'm deeply disappointed by is that we've got so much incredible talent and experience, Mm -hmm. which in the next 24 months is going to get dumped on the market because they're expensive Mm -hmm. by comparison to young, inexperienced uh, talent as well. But the challenge with that is you lose so much knowledge. Mm -hmm. When they walk out the door, the history of the company leaves, 
And you're seeing the other extreme with uh, organizations like Rolls-Royce and Lockheed and all of those. Yeah. Um, because in the 1970s, they superannuated all their pensions for the, all these young engineers. And now they're coming up to retirement, but they never bothered to find their successors. So we've now got this incredible glut of middle-aged talent. We absolutely have. In certain industries, they can hold them to ransom because it takes so long to train them up. And in other industries, they've been thrown on the scrap heap, but actually they could probably do a better job if only they were given the right opportunity, which I'm going to talk to you about afterwards. I've got well, look, you know, I've, I've seen it time and time again. You get somebody that's in their job, they're interested in their job, their pension, whatever it is that makes them want to stay in that job. I have learned through bitter experience to when I'm providing a shortlist to a client to give them exactly what they asked for, somebody better and somebody worse. And very frequently for those kind of organisations where mediocrity doesn't upset the apple cart, they'll go for the least capable of the candidates. And, I, and I've, I've learned that. I always assumed you'd want the best you could possibly find, but it's a waste of time. You've got to understand the, the organization you're going into. I was fired pretty much, constructively dismissed from a very, very senior search firm once because I made them too much money. And it wasn't they didn't like the money, but I was showing everyone else up because I was really motivated and I loved what I did. But these lazy ass bastards had sat there for X number of years trolling along, making a third of what they build, which was quite enough, thank you. And they didn't want some young upstart. Well, I wasn't that young, to be fair. They didn't want someone coming in there and, and doubling what they were doing and shoving them up. So they kicked me out. I couldn't believe it. I that discovered off with politics in my third day in work. Um, oh, yeah, I'm, I so wish I'd done it, Marcus. I never really got it. I never really got well, it. I, 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 my first job out of university well, actually, I did a commission-only job, and the company folded after three months anyway. So uh, then I got a job destroying the filing system of the Australian consul because I was the, uh, the executive assistant to the Australian consul uh, in Manchester. We were competing against Manchester for the Sydney Olympics. So the consul on day one said, well, come up with some ideas to cut costs and raise revenue. So I came up with 18 on day one. On day two, she told the senior leadership team. Uh, and then I was just persona non grata from that moment on. So for the rest of the year, the, the year that I survived before she retired, I had uh, a most unpleasant time. Well, at least you had the sense to learn your lesson. I didn't. Um, and that's I why didn't I learn the lesson. to give a fuck. Well, that's why I'm out now, out of the industry, running my own business. because I, I Unemployable just... and fireproof us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I've sat around the table I'm in right in the boardroom where I am right now, Marcus, and I've met, you know, commanders of NATO. I've met extraordinary industry leaders who, who you know, sometimes they're, 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 I've advised some people to leave the horrible jobs they're in because I think they're suicidal. You know, I think they're not far off losing it completely because, you know, they're either stuck in a toxic job they can't stand or they can't find another job. During COVID, God, which was a terrible time for middle-aged guys in particular, I spoke to a friend of mine who runs a train operating company and I asked him what the suicide rate was like on his line. And he said, Tash, it's up by 36%. Bloody hell. You know, and I realised it's because a lot of these guys that I speak to and girls, you know, senior execs, kicked out of their jobs. You know, they've still got mortgages, they've got kids at school, you know, they're, they're, they spend whatever they get. And there was no, no opportunity of getting another job. And what we're losing by not hiring this is we've got no mentors for the people coming up behind. 
Yes, of course, diversity should be a thing. Yes, we should be creating opportunity for the leaders of tomorrow. But denying them the mentorship and the knowledge and the skill and the learning that we are by not allowing middle-aged men or middle-aged white men, let's say it, back into the market, is just a travesty. One guy I remember in particular, you know, his father was in the Second World War. He was he had a wretched childhood because his father had PTSD, left, left home at 15 just to save his own life, got a job at a pub, ended up as the manager of the pub, ended up being the operations director of the pub group. And his career went from there and he's chief exec now. A man of infinite wisdom, infinite kindness, courage, insight, ability. Hit 55, out on the scrap heap. There, was, there couldn't have been anyone better than him to help mid people in the late 20s and 30s learn how to be leaders. You know, it's not all about kind of aspiring to get the right skills and get the right level and get the right salary. It's about learning how to lead. And that's a really, really difficult skill. And again, when the people that have got it, you meet them, what a lovely feeling it creates in you. How fortunate you would be to work for a leader as opposed to a boss who's got unachievable targets and you know, a, a nasty person sitting above them who's just looking at what they need to report to the board. People are not considered yet. I'm hoping that the skills shortage or talent shortage or whatever they want to call it, because it's certainly not a people shortage. We're still here. You're just not employing us. We'll change their minds. It's really interesting. I mean, this is a topic that we should probably delve into a lot deeper. I have a thesis that in the next 24 months, there's going to be a lot of layoffs of very good operators. But they're not going to get a job in is the same thing that they've always done. But they do understand how organizations work. They do understand the consequences of buying badly and without proper thought because they've had to pick up the pieces. They do understand the political um, factions and how to run projects and how to make things work in enterprise. So I've got a little um, proposition to uh, discuss with you afterwards about how we can help. And I think it's a winner. Well, well, I'd love to hear it because, you know, I've spent the last couple of years talking to organisations saying, don't don't try and do your own recruitment or don't leave it in the hands of salespeople. You know, partner with my organisation and we'll, we'll build all of this for you and we'll bring you people that might not have the right skills, but they've got the right attitude. And you train them, train them because you'll get so much from them and, and they'll last with you much longer because they'll be grateful that you kind of invested in them and you've given them a place to come. And I mean this for the 50 plus. You know, the people that still want to work at 65, 70, and there's plenty of them too. Give them a place to come to. Stop worrying about whether they're going to show up your youngsters or, or the youngsters aren't going to like it. They're the, they'll stay three years. This group is going to stay for 10 years. Train them. And you've got something really special there. You know, I think it's a core value that, that you know, our generation have. Loyalty and, and gratitude and, you know, an expectation of reward for return of effort. I think you need the different generations and they bring different value. The key is to learn how to manage the differences by finding what they have in common and allowing the differences to be celebrated because there are times when my millennial and Gen Z network definitely need to lead. And mm. I've got the hook through my nose and I'm following absolutely blindly because they know what the hell they're doing and there are times when they come to me because uh, you know the old fat silver fox is there peering on and you know looking on wisely thinking oh my god please don't make oh don't do that 
Mm-hmm. You've done it. Okay, right. Let's see how we can help you mend that broken head. And it's heartbreaking because there's so much rich talent out there. Mm-hmm. And if they work together and they look for what they have in common, there's maybe a little bit of translation required and modification of behavior so that things that don't spark from nothing. The generational differences in terms of language and wokeness and what's acceptable and not. This stuff's real. And why would we not want to learn to adapt? And the younger generations also perhaps might want to be a little bit more tolerant. Mm -hmm. I was asked for the first time the other day what my pronouns were. I'm sorry, I I, I just have so little patience for that. And I probably should be more considerate of this ridiculous phenomenon that's come out of absolutely nowhere and is completely completely pointless. It's unfamiliar and I'm willing to give it some latitude. I do feel that it becomes a bone of contention and it's largely driven by the trans issue more Mm. than anything else. And that's driven by a lot of fear and hatred. In all honesty, I've interviewed several trans people. In my experience, They're incredibly brave and courageous. I mean, there's no way on God's earth I'd dress up in a frock and go outside. I might dress up in a frock at home, who knows? Mm -hmm. Uh, But going outside, the the terror, because the reaction and Mm -hmm. the probability you're going to come back with at least bruising. I mean, you've got to be incredibly brave. I don't disagree with you. Many, many, many years ago, trans guy in a big bank got fired when he came out as trans. He had six children. You know, how's he ever going to get a job? And in that day and age, he wouldn't. What I don't like is this kind of activism around it. You know, you will you will behave in the way that I wish you to. Well, I'm you know I'm a a little bit of a buggery with that. I I won't behave how you wish me to. And I'm sure a lot of us are the same. I need to get with the program, but I don't deal with that demographic, so I haven't. And I have very little patience for it. The best one I ever saw, guy on LinkedIn, calls himself he him marvelous. Well, that's nice. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable with it. I think it's generally used as a way of creating difference and judgment. And it's um, for those people who need it, fine. Um, call me what the fuck you like, I don't care. Hmm. But for those people who need it, maybe it's something that's useful, who knows. But I think we're down a rabbit hole, so uh, let's rescue this. Okay, so... I am really curious about trying to understand why women so often seem to undersell themselves and men fall foul of the Dunning-Kruger effect and are utterly convinced of their capability when uh, maybe it's somewhat misplaced. What is it down the gender lines that causes this kind of behavior? Because I've seen it in hiring as well as being a recruiter and probably being guilty of it myself as a candidate. I think um, for the women that, you know, at executive level that have made it, they've got 30, 35 years of having to battle to get there. And at every stage, you think it's it's classic imposter syndrome. Of course it is. But men have that too. I'm not denying that men have it. They most certainly do. You know, that I will be found out. I will be found out. No one's found me out. I'm winging this, even though they've got decades of experience behind them. When they finally get the big job, I I had a classic recently. Um, was working with an iconic motorcycle brand. Obviously, I can't name them. And this woman got the, you know, the international sales director role. She was driven. She was passionate. She was brilliant. She had this skill. She came from a background, you know. And up until the moment she got the job, she was there. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, I, I, I can't meet his, ex- you know, the boss's expectations. He wants too much. I can't give it to him. I'm going to let him down. It wasn't about her at all. It was about him. I'm going to let him down. I'm going to fail them. Where that comes from, deep psychological stuff from being a woman in the 80s and 70s, possibly, I don't know. Men, you know, they've got to be the providers, haven't they? They've got to believe in themselves. They've got to get the jobs and jobs and jobs. And, and, and they've got many, many tactics they can call upon to achieve that. They might, my, for example, when I was at school, my dad paid for my brother to go to a private school, but Beck and I, my sister and I went to the local comprehensive because he could only pay for one. And it was acceptable that the man, well, it was obviously the man that would get it. Funnily yeah. enough, we're far more successful than he is, you know, ultimately. But he had the education, he had the network, he had all of those things. Born with a silver spoon. <laughs> well, he, he had his alumni, you know, the, that... And they've, they've got ways that they can kind of build, you know, camaraderie and ways that they can. I mean, I know someone that got a job just because he was a golfer and the client was a golfer. And so the girl didn't get a look in and, and scratch golfer got the job. And I'm sure they had great times on the golf course. Dash, I've just spotted the time. I know you've got to dash on, yes. uh, on the hour. So this has been really very interesting. I would love to have you back if you're willing. Um, fabulous. OK. And how can people get hold of you? LinkedIn. By far the best way, by far the best way. And what sort of candidates do you help? I help senior and executive people. And I work in the engineering manufacturing space. I deal with, you know, maritime, defence and aerospace, automotive. So the industrial markets are really where I can be helpful. And I do run monthly sessions with people, telling them how they can get themselves a job. Clearly, I'm just one of 48,000 recruitment firms. So I don't get enough jobs to help everyone that needs help. But you're I alone in the crowd, Tash. Yes, me, me, me. Come to me. <laughs> Thank you. It's been lovely to see you. Thank you. And I'd love to come back. Wonderful. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're looking for a senior job in the the sectors that Tash mentioned, do get in touch. She'll help you whether or not she can place you or not. She will help you definitely buff up your marketing content because let's face it, getting a job is just a sale. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.